This is episode number 25 of the Abuse Talk podcast with me, Jennifer Gilmore. Welcome to the Abuse Talk podcast. My name is Jennifer Gilmore. I turned my mess into a message. I'm an author and advocate for women in abusive relationships and believe that together we are louder. Each fortnight, there is a new episode on the Abuse Talk podcast, a series of interviews with those that work in the domestic abuse sector, getting an inside feel for what it's really like in their job role and sharing it with all of you. But today we are sharing something different. We're introducing survivor stories, those who have lived it, experienced it and are willing to share. I speak with Danielle Downey, who's a best-selling author, transformation life coach and speaker. Her book is called It's No Secret, Thriving After Surviving, and we talk about her experiences of childhood abuse. Now, before we get started, I want to say huge thank you to our main sponsor, who's Rockpool. You can find out more about them at rockpool.life, but I have just seen that they've got a Hope To Recovery program. It's a six-week program for any adult that is experiencing or has experienced domestic abuse, and this is their first step towards recovery. So each session is going to last about one hour, and it can be delivered by training facilitators in a classroom or online enabling organizations to support as many people as possible so I believe this is relatively new and participants um, will be helped to recognize coercive control and the dynamics of domestic abuse the individual understanding of how difficult it is to see what is happening when you're in an abusive relationship participants understand their parenting abilities and participants to proactively make an action plan towards abuse-free life. So if you're interested or want to find out more about this, head over to rockpool.life. And also, just right before we go into that interview, I need to thank my patrons, um, Katrina here and Susan Rahima, they help on my Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash Janelle Gilmore on the hashtag abuse talk tier. So at the moment, they're on the journey of seeing the app development unfold for hashtag abuse talk. They get to know everything before everyone else. So they find out about the Twitter chat themes, for example, and any news and updates. So if you want to join them over there, head over to patreon.com forward slash Jen L. Gilmore. Gilmore. Jen L. Gilmore. Sorry, folks. Right, let's head over to that interview. Um, well, conversation, I want to call it, with Danielle Downey. I'm really delighted to have Danielle Downey with us today. And she's um, actually reached out and has obviously an inspirational story to tell. In fact, her um, story has been featured on national TV and on radio stations. And I hear quite a few podcasts is that right Danielle? It is yeah I launched a book in 2018 um, and shied away from the press initially Um, I had a bit of flack when my book came out um, which made me pull back and think what on earth have I done but the last 14 months I've been putting myself out there a lot more and the feedback that I've had from other survivors has been um, amazing. 
Wow. Um, and, and this is really from, you know, your book that you've mentioned, which is called It's No Secret, Thriving After Surviving. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So when did you write that? Um, I started writing it in 2017. I'd always kind of, I've, I've always written, I've always like written poetry and stuff. Um, and I realised as I came to terms with my abuse that my life hadn't been entirely normal. I think when we've lived life, a life that's full of trauma, whether it's domestic abuse or with lots of grievances and stuff, that perhaps we, we normalise it. And as I came to terms through with my past, I realised it wasn't entirely normal um, and that I probably had something out there that other people could take some stuff from as well. Um, so I started writing and it took me about a year. Oh, right. Well, that's quite impressive, really, because I've heard people can take years to sort of come up with that first book. So it sounded like maybe you were determined. Am I correct? Yeah, I said I treated it a little bit like a job. I became um, people would have thought I was some sort of down and out going and sitting in coffee one every morning. I dropped the kids off at eight o'clock and I sat in my regular chair every day and ordered two pieces of toast and a cup of tea. And I sat for two hours and I wrote religiously every day. Wow. I mean, I suppose if that helps and, you know, that that gets you to those steps forward and having the inspirational story and the backing and the passion, it just drives you forward, doesn't it? Yeah, um, it does. Yeah, absolutely. So it came out in November 2018. Um, let's let's go back a bit. What What led you to, you know, bringing your story out into a book and putting that all together in a package really <laughs> um so I'm a survivor of childhood sexual abuse um and it was what what's what I now know is really common that most survivors don't disclose their abuse until they're around about I think the average age is 48 um right. for me I started to get flashbacks so I'd worked as a midwife for many years I'd raised six kids um had an interesting family dynamic and always knew that my childhood was was kind of odd but I'd buried such a lot and late 30s I moved into the domestic abuse sector and and I think what from what I now read is that quite often if you're doing a job that gives you triggers you then start to uncover a lot of what had what had gone on and that's certainly what happened with me I I started to get this video that I couldn't shift in my head that just wouldn't go away um so I sought out therapy um started to do a lot of my own research about healing um what then transpired was that my abuser hadn't just abused me but had abused two close members of my family as well so that gave me credibility with the fact that I wasn't mad because I did sit and think mm. actually am I am I going nuts um is this all made up um so I guess a little bit like perhaps the Jimmy Savile case once one victim came forward more people went actually I'm not mad I didn't imagine it it happened to me and that was very much what, what happened to me. And on the back of that, it led to an awful conflict within my family um, and led to me then realising that actually I did have a story to tell that was probably a story that was reiterated with so many women. Um, <clears throat> and one in six children suffer sexual violence. So yeah. I know that I'm not alone. I can't, I can't believe what was, what was that um, age, 48, around that age? Yeah, 48 is the, average, is the average age to disclose. And of course, that gives, that gives victims, survivors, whichever term you want to use. It, it, what, what my family said to me was, well, why didn't you, why didn't you tell us before? Mm. Um, and there's so many reasons that people don't disclose. Exactly the same with domestic abuse. People don't disclose because the dynamics are so, are so in, intertwined in your life and the ramifications of holding your hand up, especially when your abuser is known to you, as it is in most cases, um, is, is really difficult. 
And obviously went into this job role. Do you think that if you hadn't have gone into that job role that it wouldn't have unfolded in the same way then? I think so, yeah. I'd always worked in domestic abuse as a midwife. I'd always could have been domestic abuse liaison midwife. Um, and then I realised that with six small children, trying to work a shift pattern on the wards was very difficult. So worked went to work in the women's refuge. And I think that I, I'm a bit of a fatalist and I believe that that's kind of what led me down the path, which is what's sort of given me what I do now, really, which is the domestic abuse, the sexual violence, the campaigning, the mm. speaking out for people who sometimes haven't got a voice themselves yes and so obviously you um you know had um that kind of affirmation that you're not on your own that you're not going completely crazy and that it, you know it did happen to you which I can imagine was a really difficult part of your journey um you, you gained help which I think is you know was that a, a gut reaction to get help or did you have to be persuaded in any way? Did you second guess it? Or did you just know that I need some support right now? When I look back, so I'm, I'm very practically minded. So I knew that I knew that I probably needed to speak to a therapist. Um, mm. But I've always been very anti-counselling because I didn't ever want to go open that box, so to speak. But I'd seen I'd seen the success of counselling with lots of my clients. So I, I embraced um, the women's sexual violence counselling. And there was a huge waiting list. Just making the phone call was really difficult to sort of say, actually, can you put me on a waiting list? Um, and I think I waited about nine months for counselling. And during that time, I could have easily just said, actually, do you know what? I'm not doing it. Um, and it, it was horrific. I, I, you know, to I don't now believe with the training that I've done that we have to necessarily relive all our past trauma. I don't think mm. that did me any favours. Um, it felt like I was emotionally sexually abused again for the first three weeks. And I gave myself a deadline of eight weeks of counselling. And so I kind of pushed myself to say the stuff I had to say to get it out in the open. Mm. Um, and I did, I did feel better once I'd done it. And what I didn't want to do was be beholden to counselling. I didn't want to stay in counselling forever and a day mm. um, and become dependent on it. Hence the, the very ridiculous, completely unfounded, made up number of eight weeks. I'll just have eight weeks counselling <laughs> and then I'm going. Because <laughs> I don't believe I was particularly healed after yeah. eight weeks. That was just my deadline. <laughs> <laughs> you just set yourself a deadline. It just came out of nowhere. Um, but yeah. clearly that's something that helped you in, you know, in your mindset, really. Um, and I've been there with with um, counselling as well. And it's almost, I don't know um, how you feel, but it's like kind of forced, you know, there's a box of tissues next to you. You're thinking, <laughs> what, you know, it's like you have to force yourself to talk about it to a complete stranger at first. And it does get easier, doesn't it? But it's, it's kind of abnormal because I don't know whether it's a, a society thing, um, where we like to build relationships and then have a conversation and the stranger aspect of it is maybe a bit unnervy <laughs> yeah no, but, and I think it's completely it's completely that isn't it it is very forced you've got a timer sat next to you you know mm -hmm. a clock that says you've got an hour so best you get your story out there and I think I sat for the first session and said very little and then realized that actually do you know what I, I was now seven weeks down the line so the following week took the bull by the horns put a pillow over my head and um and just blurted out I had to verbalize I think for me exactly what was going on in the video in my head which was right um and until I'd verbalized that it was like a great big boil and I think once I said it it didn't sound as bad it was really bad but it 
didn't sound as bad and that mm. boil kind of burst and I'm not saying that that's the way that for everybody should no. do it at all. I think that that's just what worked for me. And at that, I actually did more healing last year post my book coming out right. um, than I did in the, the preceding years going through therapy and, and you know, counselling and stuff. Well, did did you find, um, you know, putting that book together that uh, like a part of therapy in a sense, you know, writing it out or did you find it was actually re-traumatising it? Uh, uh, you know, which side did you did it feel like really for you? It didn't feel cathartic um, at all. People have said, oh, you know, did you find it cathartic writing? And I didn't really. I, I saw it more as a process. It, it, I, I am really practical. So I saw it more as I've got a story to tell because I know it will empower other women. And I don't, I don't know the many men that have read my book. Um, so I saw it more as, more as that sort of thing. Um, and I guess everybody's different. I do know other authors that have written memoirs that say that they found it really cathartic and really mm. helpful writing. The only time I actually cried was when I was writing about when my grandmother, who was a really close female figure in my life, passed away. And I found myself blubbing in the corner of the coffee shop, tears mm. just falling as I wrote as I wrote that chapter because I, the I guess the grief was still so raw. But I buried mm. so much emotion, and I think it's really common with lots of survivors of domestic abuse and sexual violence that we bury emotion because to take hold of that wave of emotion was just it was too big for me at that point in time and I, I did most of my healing last year over five or six months when mm. I had a complete meltdown post my book coming out and didn't leave the house for six months right so it's, it's clearly just not been I mean it was never going to be an easy journey was it let's face it it's not, no, it's, not an, it's not an easy <laughs> thing that you have done it's something that is it's almost like putting your a piece of your body part out there isn't it it's very personal um so tell us about um the book is it a memoir is it, it is, um it is a memoir and i wrote it in my name what i didn't want to do was was invalidate my story by writing it under a pen name mm. um and some people said to me what on earth are you doing it's going to create huge problems and i guess i i, I thought that the universe would kind of protect me more when I put my book out there, which sounds a little like, you know, Disney, but what I now realize is that I had to go through that, through the, the putting my book out there, being shot down in flames by the people that I thought kind of had my back, which was my family, that then led me to fall down big style, to suffer crippling anxiety, which I'd always thought was a little bit imagined. And I know mm. that makes me sound like a complete bitch, but I thought, why can't people pull themselves together? And then having experienced that, the universe last year was my greatest teacher because it put me on my ass. I, I, I couldn't I couldn't go out the house. I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't even think about brushing my teeth or making a cup of tea. I, I had to just heal. And that, that did me the greatest favour. So I am really thankful for that. Um, and and obviously now you're in a, in a completely different position and I don't know how you feel personally with lockdown um for me I found it kind of challenging because there's been I don't know maybe quite a lot of triggers there to what it was like in in my past relationship and dealing with that side and I think I'm not the only one in in saying that at all I think there's been many people that have said this is too familiar and it's really quite struggle you know struggle with the isolation and with the control of having to stay in and and these rules and regulations that we're told we have to follow it's really not been easy I don't know how, how you've managed through it obviously yeah. with with everything but 
what what's your take on that side of things I still feel the same. So what I've realised is that I am a control freak. I do like to be in charge of where I go, when I go, how I go, um, if I spend money, if I don't spend money. And unlike you, Jennifer, I, I find I found lockdown a real challenge. I, I find like my wings are clipped completely. I can't go and do um, even just like daily stuff initially. It was, wasn't it? You know, you couldn't go to the shops to get some blue roll because there wasn't any in stock. Just the most ridiculous things. Um, so I, I really struggled with lockdown as well. And I think lots of people who've walked the same sort of path mm. have perhaps struggled as well. And my day is very routine. So I, I found that the, the routine of not being able to go out initially really constrained my headspace. I've had to work really hard on the sort of, you know, the where I am in my head and do lots of meditation and I've taken mm. up running again which I never thought I'd do because I'm, <laughs> I'm not built to run but actually that's been a great release just the just the ability to say right I'm going out for a run every morning and then I'm going to mm. go and do like a 30-day plank challenge in the garden has given me a bit of routine back <laughs> I'm complete opposite everything's gone out the window with exercise because I'm a gi- I'm a gym person so I like um that was my space and my time to sort of let my I don't know frustrations out or you know just my time and so having that taken away I'm not a very good runner so that is not going to help me um and with the three kids it's just not going to happen so we've just accepted (laughs) but yeah it it has been a challenge and I think I think from just even listening just to the small areas of what you know your story and your journey I think it is you know amazing that you're managing to have fit a process and a routine into lockdown without it setting you back you know because it could have been easy that it could have set you back when you've it's quite it's still quite new and fresh that you've only just come out of that time when you've published your book and had that six months of you know you know struggle to heal really Um, and so you should be really proud of yourself for getting to that point and to get through lockdown (laughs) I think I think what's changed with me as well is that I, I, I coin a phrase that says that busy, busy used to be my drugs and alcohol. So I was the woman with six kids under eight and my kids are older now who had a job, who was studying for a degree, who used to go running, who helped at PTA. And my day was completely full because yeah. I knew that if I sat down, that I might then start to have to think and process. And I didn't yeah. want to go to that space. What changed last year was that I had this in four, six months when I had to sit on my bum and think and my mind got quieter and I got much better at just being. And some days now I do just say to my husband, I'm in the garden reading. There's no guilt there. I yeah. some days just acknowledge that some days I'm tired. Some days I just need a bit of space. Sometimes I just want to just be. I just want to lie on a rug in the garden and not do anything. And I, did, I used to feel guilty for that. Yeah. And now I don't. Now I just kind of go, this is this is my time. I'm good with that. <laughs> yeah, it's really nice. And I think maybe even comparing to go, why did I ever not have that? You know, why was that an issue? Now, obviously, you, you do you do more than just, you know, your work on this book and um, taking it forward. I think, did I read right that you do um, some, is it coaching or yep. a group? Yeah, so on the back of my book, when I, when I first wrote my book, when it first came out, um, I wasn't expecting the response I got from people to come forward and say, actually, this happened to me and I've never told anybody. So I received like a barrage of emails within the first month of people just saying, wowzers, I had no idea that happened to you and it happened to mm. me. And it was people that I had no idea because we don't walk around with a badge that says I was sexually abused or I'm a survivor of domestic abuse. Mm-hmm. So I set up a group called Speak Out Sisterhood, SOS. 
um, which is a closed private Facebook group. If anybody wants to find it, you can still see it, but you can't see posts and who's in it. And it's a community for women. Um, I haven't got any men in there. Um, there's nobody that identifies as a woman, um, but they would be welcome. Um, and it's a community for women just to find love, support, healing with no judgment. Nobody's encouraged to tell their story unless they choose. And for a lot of people, what I now know, it's about acknowledging our past to ourselves more than anything. Mm. Not everybody wants to stand on a soapbox and say this happened to me. But sometimes in order to acknowledge where we've been, we have to look in the mirror and say, do you know what? Actually, that did happen. I, I can't deny it anymore. I'm not mm. going to do anything about it. But I need to I need to look in the mirror and say this. I'm a survivor, too. This happened to me. Hence the name Speak Out Sisterhood. Right. Um, and I really like the fact that, you know, when people speak their truths to themselves, it kind of sets them free a bit. Um, so I do that and alongside that I also am a, I'm a life coach so I, I coach women who just feel stuck sometimes and some some people's adversities are not sexual abuse or domestic abuse some mm. people have just had a really tough time coming to terms with redundancy or grief or financial issues um, and my background as a life coach and with communication skills qualifications I've got and working as an IDVA, I've got a lot of skills that allow me kind of to help people to move forward over six weeks. Um, people who've been really stuck and just help them sort of find joy and passion again and, and perhaps learn to smile. A lot of the clients <laughs> I work with have perhaps forgotten that they've got this beautiful mm. smile and that they can do things in their lives that bring them joy. Well, so when you say that, it sounds like you are still really busy and that you fill your day. <laughs> I'm a lot less a lot less busy than I was. I feel positively lazy. <laughs> well, that's great. I mean, I mean, maybe it's the fact that um, you're able to give, you know, like 100% of yourself to those projects, whereas maybe before you were spreading your out, yourself out so far that you weren't able to give 100%. Who knows? Um, I know I'm kind of guilty of doing things like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think lots of us are, aren't we? And I think I, I, what I'm really good at now is I, I can do an hour's, an hour's work on one thing and then put that down. Um, and then I can do an hour's work on something else and then go to a coaching call. And mm -hmm. I still sit and think, oh, I've still got like four hours of my working day left. I'm mm -hmm. going to read a book now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, so obviously you're there to support other people throughout your coaching and everything. And you've had this journey and you've had your own life experiences. How do you find um, helping other people and how do you find looking after yourself because obviously it's important for for you to protect your own emotions throughout that process as well yeah and I've, I've got very good at knowing the people that I can't work with right um, so if somebody is trying to say to me I need you to fix me that's probably not the right kind of person for me to work with at that point in time because mm -hmm. I believe we do have the tools to fix ourselves so there are some people that I won't work with and well I'll just say to them I don't think or, or perhaps there's a personality clash or mm. I, I, I'm good at recognizing those sorts of people. So I, I'm very good then at not taking on, not taking on somebody perhaps who isn't ready to move forward, who perhaps is still blaming other people rather than looking at, I, I'm ready now to move forward. Um, I've got an amazing husband. Um, I've got a really fantastic group of friends. I'm a member of a lot of sort of women's groups down here. Um, I journal a lot. Um, I still do my gratitudes before I go to bed. It's the first thing I do when I wake up. I've got into crystals. I'm a bit woo-woo. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I wear crystals down my bra a lot, and I put them out in the sun, uh, out in the sun, and out in the moon to charge. Um, and I do a lot of grounding. 
So before I'm speaking to somebody who I know perhaps their story, part of the coaching work I do is about sort of listening to what people are saying. And we do quite a lot of listening sort of work about their language that they're using. Um, and sometimes that can be really traumatic to hear what other people have been through. And often mm -hmm. I'll, I'll ground, often I'll sort of put myself in a bubble and because I don't want vicarious trauma, Mm. And, and that's what I used to do. Now, a lot of people, perhaps who've been adverse and worked in domestic abuse, suffer from vicarious trauma of listening to other stuff that people have gone through. So I'm, I'm very good now at actually knowing that I'm okay, I'm grounded, and this isn't about me. This is about me just being there to hold their space. Mm. So I think there's lots of stuff that we can do, or, and that I do, to protect myself and my well-being and self-care. You know, I, I'm really good now at saying I need a day off. I'm just going <laughs> to sit in my bed and read. <laughs> I love self-care I just wish I had more chance to do it <laughs> I think especially when you've, when you've got three younger children as well my six kids oh. four of all four of all left home now and I've I mean I'm complaining about three you're there with six <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've got four four adult children now and I, you never let go of the reins completely but they are all self-sufficient and you know we, we did a good job of bringing them up so yeah do you mind talking about them or what they no not at all are? So, so I had at one point I had six children under eight not because I bred very heavily but I had two children from my first marriage two from my second marriage and as a midwife um, I clearly was fairly crap at contraception because um, <laughs> I had two children were 14 months apart I'd only been back at work five days when I felt when I found out I was pregnant again and my oh, manager wow. had a fit um, and then my <laughs> husband's ex-wife gave us his two children um, it's a long arduous story um, there's a chapter in my book about it and about Kafkas and the court system and stuff and oh, how goodness. we fought we fought for them for a long time um so I ended up with six kids under eight um and the eldest now is 23 right so that, was, wow. that was many moons ago and I'm not I'm not I'm not ashamed to say I did used to go and lock myself in the shower sometimes and refuse to come out because <laughs> I was I was on my own with these six kids my husband was away and I think you just have to sometimes get through the day however you can oh I've I just oh Gosh, I mean, I feel like I shouldn't be complaining right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, th I think everybody's allowed to complain. And, and, and those, when I look back on photographs and just think, how on earth did we do it in terms of time and time and energy and just money? Because financially they were draining. Um, bless them. <laughs> they can't help it can they no not at all well you've spoken just uh you touched on Kafkas. um we've we've spoken about this on the podcast and um, we've spoken about it in discussions um and the whole family court system oh yeah i mean what what a financial drain for not getting much back um and i think for me i mean we, we don't have to talk about this if you don't want to but I don't know um, if you have this, a similar experience, but I went in trusting a system and I felt that it's okay because this is run by professionals and um, it's part of the government people. There's going to be justice and they're going to see what's happened and see it's wrong. And no, that, that's just not what happened. And I realised it took a long time for me to switch on to that the system is not not how we would imagine it as people coming out of those relationships yeah i know i completely agree and and horrible to go through um and then it doesn't help when you maybe come out the other end and they go we should have listened to you and it's <laughs> uh, so you're gonna give me a refund on all the the money i've spent with my solicitor then because you know i told you this was going to happen and it is a huge frustration and clearly you've um 
gone through that do you do you have any random tips and advice for anybody that's going through um the family court system right now so we we been we been solicitors after four years and fifteen thousand pounds and getting nowhere. Um, I decided to do everything ourselves, and I found a really good website um, called wikivorce.com, right. which is w i k i v o r c e dot com, and it's run by barristers who will work pro bono. The best thing I ever 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 found because that gave me some of the skills and a few tips to be able to self represent in court. Mm. Um, if you don't get legal aid, and because the legal aid budget now has been cut on the bones of its butt, um, I would say self-represent and go in with, with a Mackenzie friend. When you do that, your other side's solicitor has to give you advice. Um, and they have to be seen to be playing fair. Um, it's not for everybody. And I think I've, I've seen, when I used to go into court as a professional, as an IDVA, I've seen um, perpetrators be allowed to, to question their um their you know ex-partners um and th that in the new the, the new domestic abuse bill should be being removed um yeah. which would be the best thing ever thank the lord um i would say um it, it's really hard to have trust especially when when you see so much nonsense going on in the family court um write everything down we seem as a society we believe stuff that's written down so if you're somebody who's just on the verge of leaving an abusive partner make sure that you've got documented stuff make sure it's safe obviously don't leave it in the house if you're yeah. still with them but make sure that you're documenting every little thing i used to send kafkas weekly um, we had our own kafkas officer and my children had guardians um i used to send them weekly a, a log of everything that had happened and i would also send that into court as well and i'd mm. send it to the person solicitor it was my husband's ex-wife solicitor and I got really good at just triple copying everything, sending it all once a week as an update about what was happening to build our own case because Kafkas weren't listening. Kafkas were not listening about how detrimental the contact my stepchildren they had with the contact they had with their mother was. Mm. Um, she was she was a really difficult human being. And actually, in the, in the end, the court did make the right decision four mm. years on um, and actually stop her from seeing the kids until they were 18. Um, we did that through something I found on Wikivorce again, um, and it was an order called a 9114. Right, okay. So a 9114 basically means quite often what we see with perpetrators is that they'll take you back and take you back and take you back again for contact, um, almost as a means of control and continuing the control. A 9114 stops them keep making those applications. Yes, so it, yeah. it, it's a really old bit of it's a really old bit of um, bit of judicial kit, but mm. they will use it. Um, and when I when I told our solicitor um, or the children's guardian about it, she went, "I've only ever used that once," and I was like, "I, I want to use it. I, th I think this will work." Um, and sh that's what we did, and and it worked a treat. And what it means is that she could never put in another application to court without going back to court to get their permission. Mm. And she had to have a really good reason that something had changed so if you say i say for instance you've got somebody a perpetrator who is refusing to change behaviors and is still deemed a threat but is still going for access all the time you could use the 9114 as a way of stopping those continued applications until mm. they'd been on a perpetrator course or until they'd agreed to supervise contact um yeah. so it's a, it's a really useful bit of bit of kit really Right, well, thank you for that. Um, the, and the reason kind of why I touched on this, because um, I don't know if you've seen, but the Ministry of Justice have tweeted, I think it was earlier today, about um, the family courts are changing to provide more protection to children and victims of domestic abuse and other serious offences. 
offences. This includes better access to safe separate spaces in courtrooms and stopping abusers, re-victimising or coercing ex-partners into court. So obviously we'd love that to be true in itself and if that is the case you know I'm absolutely celebrating because I do think all of that should be taking place um but what we do need is the training to to provide that to make that happen um so I thought I would just touch on that news today really I think Um, the trouble in our family court system so many of the judges when I used to sit in court I used to go to court every Friday to domestic abuse hearings and so many of our judges are older white males and the misogyny that I would sit and see and I used to have to put my poker face on because otherwise I would drop the f-bomb quite often and just be what what are you saying um i had one one older judge who after his after a husband had battered his his elderly wife senseless um he said i think you should buy her some flowers as a means to say sorry and we just sat this was only i don't know six years ago maybe we sat completely incredulous that that could even be allowed and because it's so difficult to pull judges up they are a law unto their own effectively you can mm-hmm. go to the criminal justice uh, you know the ministry of justice but there is very little that will be done mm-hmm. so there, there does need to be in my opinion and i think a lot of people's opinion a massive overhaul about training um and about you know just the dynamics of domestic abuse yeah and i mean surely after say you went through it for four years i was the same four years that they will have seen you know maybe the consistency of judges would have helped that process in the fact that they'd be able to see what's happening and um, because of the 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 I don't know the what situation is in the courtroom or that they've changed the story or put a different angle or you know read between the lines or added something you just you just don't know and um, I think for me that was the frustrating part that um, the solicitor said oh this is the judge today it should be a good result oh no this one's pro father this is going to turn out this way and it's like this shouldn't even be happening this should be yeah. about the situation it should be completely non-biased Oh, yeah, that's right, isn't it? (laughs) Um, You know, and uh, yeah. So anyway, we've gone off on a tangent. Let's let's go back to to (laughs) your journey. It is a part of your your journey. And obviously everybody could read about it in your book. So where can people get um, It's No Secret, Thriving After Surviving From? Uh, it's on Amazon. Um, it knocked Oprah Winfrey off the top spot. I was very proud. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> um, and it's on Amazon um, and on Kindle. So it's paperback and um, and a Kindle version as well. Well, I mean, that's a, that's a great celebration, isn't it? <laughs> Knocking off Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> it was, it was, yeah. Did you screenshot that one? I did, yeah. It, it kept, it kept on my phone forever. <laughs> No, well, that is, well, thank you so much for sharing uh, today. And if people wanted to just find about more about your coaching and about you, where, w- where would they go? Uh, so I've got a website. It's danieldowney.co.uk. And I'm on Facebook um, and Insta and um, on Twitter <laughs> as at crazykids48. Well, yeah, that sums it up, doesn't it? <laughs> it does, absolutely. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and to hear more about your journey and clearly an inspiration to many, you know, helping people to see, you know, your, through your story that maybe they've been in a similar situation and looking for that help and support. So thank you so much. No, thank you for having me, Jennifer. It's lovely to talk to you.
Right, the next episode of the Abuse Talk podcast will be broadcast live on our YouTube channel and that will be on the 2nd of September. It will then be available to listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor um, from the 3rd of September and if you're listening on Access Northwest Radio Station you can tune in after then from um, Wednesdays 8pm, Saturdays 2pm and Mondays at 5am, almost forgot that then. Um, So if you're tuning in on Access Northwest Radio Station you'll have to do that after the 2nd of September. If you're wanting to discuss what you've heard today, feel free to post about it using the hashtag abuse talk so we can find out what you think. Please do share it with anybody that you think it may help. You never know. Those with lived experiences sometimes are more relatable and sometimes something will click. So do share it with them. And finally, you've been listening to Jennifer Gilmore, author of Isolation Junction and Clipped Wings, both available on Amazon or you can check it out at jennifergilmore.com.